Amen, friends. It is good to trust in Jesus because we trust in Jesus. Let's go to him one more time briefly in prayer and ask him to bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven above, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be pleased to do a great work through the preaching of your word today. That in the hearing of your word, we ask that you would create faith, strengthen faith, and sanctify our faith. That we would walk in obedience to you, and that we would find in walking in obedience to you the sweet blessing of proving Jesus over and over, our great friend, our great Savior, who will be with us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I've always wondered, is it like or and or? Over and, are you supposed to pronounce the V? I just said it and I was like, or and or, that's kind of weird. But I guess that's how you pronounce it. Or and or. Over and over. We're gonna go ahead and get to the word. We have much more important things to think about this morning. I wanna invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis 22. As we continue our study today through the book of Genesis, if you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 16. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to encourage you to take the Bible that we provided in the seat near you as a gift from us to you. Uh, There really is nothing that we want you to have more than a copy of God's Word for yourself. And if it's not your practice to normally open the Bible during a sermon or during the message, I want to encourage you to open the passage uh, and open to it so that you can follow along. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us here in just a, a few minutes. And after I read it, I want to encourage you to keep the Bible open through the course of our time today as we're going to be looking at the text throughout our time this morning. This is our second week in Genesis 22. And the reason that we're spending two weeks here is because there is so much to consider in this chapter. Uh, So in the last sermon I preached two weeks ago from Genesis 22, I focused our attention on God's provision of a substitutionary sacrifice who dies so that his people can live. And how the provision of a ram in the place of Isaac foreshadows God's provision of Jesus, his son, his only son, his One beloved son who dies in our place so that we can live. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I want to encourage you to do so because of how beautifully and completely this chapter foreshadows God's mercy to us in the gospel. But we're spending another week in Genesis 22 because it not only teaches us about God's mercy to us in the gospel, it also has a lot to teach us about the type of life that pleases God and the type of life that God abundantly blesses. What type of life is that? Well, let me go ahead and look at the text. Now, please follow along as I read Genesis 22 for us now. This is God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. 
These eight milk bore to Nahor, Abram's brother, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Maacah. As I said earlier, the last time we looked at Genesis 22, we focused on God and how God provided a substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac could live. And we considered how God's provision of a substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac could live was ultimately fulfilled in God's provision of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who dies in our place so that we might have eternal life. But... Genesis 22 doesn't just teach us about what God did for us. It also teaches us about how we are to live in response to God's mercy towards us. In fact, when the authors of the New Testament bring up Genesis 22, their focus is on Abraham and how Abraham's faith Filled obedience in the face of testing is an example for us that we might follow in his footsteps today. So if you're taking notes, the main point for us today from Genesis 22 is that we should respond to testing with faith-filled obedience because God abundantly blesses those who do. We should respond to testing with faith-filled obedience because God abundantly blesses those who do. We're going to look at this passage under three points this morning. So point one will be testing, point two is obedience, and point three is blessing. So first, testing. We learn from Genesis 22 that God tests his people. Look at verse one with me. Uh, It begins, after these things, meaning everything that happened in Genesis 21, after the birth and weaning of Isaac, after the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael, and after Abraham's covenant with Abimelech, after these things, we read that God tested Abraham. This entire scene and all the drama that follows it is a test. God is testing Abraham. Not because he wants to see what Abraham will do. God knows all things. He already knows what Abraham will do. He tests Abraham in order to reveal to Abraham what Abraham will do. He tests Abraham in order to reveal to Abraham the genuineness of his faith in God. He wants to show Abraham what is actually in Abraham's own heart. God tested Abraham. And we see that God does this to his people throughout scripture, over and over again. God tests his people in order to prove their faith in order to reveal to them whether they will walk in his ways or not. And we're gonna come back to this again in the last point, but I wanna say this up front. God does not give his test to you or to me because he is mean, because he is a grouch, 
because he's just looking to fault find and say, aha, you failed again. You didn't live up to my standard again. God's testing of his people is always a display of his love that we might see where we have fallen short, that we might turn to him in repentance and that we might receive mercy again. Because as we've already sung this morning, his mercy is more. I want you to be comforted and encouraged with that up front. But we also want to think about the fact that God tests his people. Think of Exodus 16, verse 4. While the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. This ain't, this ain't at all like the other tests that I gave to Abraham. I'm about to give you abundance. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and all the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Or think of how Moses describes the entirety of the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8. He said to the Israelites, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. Fast forward to the New Testament. Think of what Peter says. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. According to Peter, testing is such a normal part of our experience that he's like, don't be surprised, friends. Right? It's not strange when God's people experience testing. From Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Daniel, to Esther, to John the Baptist, to Peter, Paul, James, and John, to you and me today, God tests his people. And he tests us in various ways. One of the things that we learn from Genesis 22 about God's ways of testing his people is that at times, the tests he gives us are agonizing, right? Look at what he tells Abraham to do in verse two. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. This is the same son that God has been promising to Abraham for 25 years, this is the same son that Abraham has been waiting on for two plus decades. This is his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. He's finally come, and now God wants him to sacrifice Isaac? This is an agonizing test. Friends, we need to be instructed by this. It's one of those, I think, bumper sticker slogans that you will hear Christians try to encourage one another with that God will never give you more than you can handle. That is just not true. God will give his people more than they can handle. He will also, in the midst of temptation to sin, give you a way out. But in the midst of trials and tests, he will often give his people more than they can handle to show that the power comes not from us, but from him. And that he can sustain us and provide for us in the midst of even the most agonizing trials but we need to be instructed by the fact that there may be times in your life where you endure an agonizing test from God, where fidelity to God 
requires you to forsake that which is most dear to you. Where obedience to God will result in the sacrifice of that thing that you hold near and dear to your heart. And perhaps some of you are facing tests like this today. Right? Perhaps you've come to realize that your job is putting you in a position to effectively endorse sin. Either explicitly through what they demand that you say or implicitly through what they require you to do as part of your job. Or maybe you're in a sinful relationship with someone of the opposite sex and obedience to God requires that you change how you're engaging in that relationship in such a way that it would functionally end the relationship. But you were putting a whole lot of hope in that thing, hoping maybe it would turn out in marriage and children someday. Maybe you're struggling with same-sex attraction and you want so badly to act out on those desires. And you know that the world would cheer you on, but you recognize that God is calling you to put those desires to death and putting them to death may mean a life of celibacy. Or for the teens, maybe being accepted by the cool kids or being part of the popular crowd at school means you need to do what the cool kids do, like drink, do drugs, engage in sexual immorality. And you realize that if you follow Jesus and don't do those things, you'd be sacrificing relationships that you desperately want. Or maybe you're considering what it would look like to follow Jesus and you realize that if you choose to follow Jesus, your own physical family will forsake you. They will have nothing to do with you. Friends, whether it's these specific circumstances or others, God may at times sovereignly ordain and order circumstances in such a way that we experience agonizing tests. But God doesn't only test us in agonizing ways. He tests people in all sorts of ways, right? Peter calls them various kinds of trials. Like, hey, I'm just gonna, there's a big box out here. It's called various kinds of trials. You're gonna find all sorts of things in it, right? You might find loss of property. You might find insults. You might find opposition. You might find threats of jail time. You might find persecution. You might find sickness. You might find disease, right? There's a whole lot of things in that box called various types of trials by which we are being tested, right? And God uses all of these things to test the proven genuineness of our faith. But he doesn't only test us with trials, bad things, right? In fact, one of the most severe tests God can give anybody is wealth, comfort, and ease. Because it is so easy to begin trusting in those things rather than in God to provide. This is why Agur, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, wrote this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty, lest I steal and profane the name of the Lord, and riches, lest I become full and deny the Lord and say, who is the Lord? I don't need him anymore. If you're experiencing professional blessing, praise God. Seriously, praise God. 
and recognize that wrapped up in that testing, wrapped up in that blessing is a test. Will you trust in and chase after more and more of those material blessings or will you keep trusting in and chasing God? Really, in in, in every circumstance in which we're forced to choose between sin and righteousness, between obedience and disobedience, we're being tested. And in that sense, every single day is a test. Will I live today for the Lord? Or will I live today for myself? Will I choose self-expression over self-sacrifice? Will I choose temporal fleeting joy over eternal joy? These are the types of tests that God gives us to show us what's really in our heart. And in that, we see the goodness and kindness of God in testing us. Because the testing that the tests that God gives us reveal. They reveal where our ultimate hope is. They reveal where our ultimate loyalties lie. They reveal what is inside of our heart. So for the kids, I want you to think about this. In that sense, God's tests are a bit like one of those invisible ink coloring books, right? You open the book and the pages look blank. There's nothing on them. Then you take the invisible ink marker to the page and you start coloring and whoa, there's colors and pictures and giraffes and all that stuff was on the page, but I didn't see it until the invisible ink marker came over the page. In that sense, God, the invisible ink marker is like God's test to our heart to show us what's really going on inside of it. God takes the test and colors on our heart and voila, we see where our ultimate hopes are. I think of Peter for just a second. Peter told Jesus, I love you and I'll never abandon you. I'm gonna be with you to your side to the very end. Then a few hours later, God came through with a test. All right, Peter, here comes a servant girl. She's gonna ask you a question. Hey, you're one of Jesus's followers, right? Nope, not me. Don't wanna be counted with him. Right, God brought the test, colored on Peter's heart, and Peter saw fear of man. Loving this life more than the next life. Don't wanna die with Jesus even though he's willing to die for me. That's the way that God used this test, but but it was in love for Peter so that Peter would one day repent and turn to the Lord, which we see him do powerfully. That's how God uses tests in our lives. God gives his people tests to give his people an opportunity to see what they are really like. Just like he gave Abraham the test of sacrificing Isaac to see where his loyalties lied. But Genesis 22 doesn't just show us that God tests us. It also shows us how we pass those tests, which brings us to point two, obedience. God tests his people, and we should respond to those tests with faith-filled obedience. And that's what we learn from Abraham's response. Right? As shocking as God's command to Abraham was, and it was shocking, equally shocking, is Abraham's response. Abraham obeys. He obeys God. Look at verse three. God gave him the command, and he rose early the next morning, made preparations, 
and went to the land of Moriah. He doesn't question God's command. He doesn't plead with God for another path. He doesn't throw up his hands and walk away from God because the command that God has given to Abraham is just too much to ask. Abraham obeys. And his obedience isn't short-lived. He persists in his obedience. Look at verse four. Notice that the place God commanded him to go to sacrifice Isaac was a three-day journey away. That means for three days, he journeyed knowing what was coming. For 72 hours, he had to torturously wrestle with this command. He had 72 hours to turn away, to turn back, to not go through with it, but he persists in his obedience. He doesn't turn back. He doesn't disobey God. And it's not just Abraham's obedience that Moses wants us to be wound by. It's also his faith. Look at what he says in verse five. After they arrive at the mountain, he tells the young men with him to stay with the donkey and says to them, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. All of the verbs are in the first person plural. We will go, we will worship, we will come again. Abraham is so confident in God's purposes that he tells his servants, we are coming back to you. And that's not the only place we see his faith on display. Look at verses seven and eight. As they ascend the mountain, Isaac asks that heartbreaking question, Father, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Look at how Abraham responds in verse eight. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I don't know how he will do it or when he will do it, but I know he will do it. I have doubted him in these past 25 years. I have fallen short on multiple occasions and I have learned through it all that God will provide and he will provide even here now. Even if he has to raise you from the dead, Isaac, he will provide. And then his obedience continues. They arrive, the time has come, and we're confronted again by Abraham's obedience. He doesn't delay. Look at verse nine. He builds the altar, lays the wood, finds Isaac, his son, lays him on the altar, reaches out his hand, takes the knife, lifts the knife to sacrifice his son. Like if this is a TV show, the knife goes up and you're on the edge of your seat and then commercial. Cut to purchase a car, cut to buy this phone, buy this gum, go on this vacation. You're just sitting there waiting and then it comes back on and the knife is up and you're like, is it gonna fall? And then Abraham, at the last moment, God intervenes. Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham responds to God's test with faith-filled obedience. And as a result, he has passed the test. God's people should respond to God's tests with faith-filled obedience. But I want to highlight why. I want you to see why why you can 
and should walk in faith-filled obedience, even in the most agonizing of circumstances. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham's faith in Hebrews chapter 11. As he's looking back on Genesis 22, he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, why did he do this? Because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham responded to God's test with faith-filled obedience because he knew God can provide. God can provide for me in the midst of my testing. This is why he told the servants in verse five, y'all stay here with the donkey. We're going over there, we're gonna worship, we're coming back. That's why he said to Isaac, he will provide a lamb, my son. He will provide. I don't know how he will do it. I don't know when he will do it. I can't even see any possible way through this thing, but I'm gonna walk in faith-filled obedience to God's commands because I am confident that God can and will provide what is needed. This is what it looks like to walk by faith. It's not to say I believe God, as Kevin DeYoung said, and then to just stand in place like I believe you and God's like, all right, go, go ahead. Well, if Abraham just looked at God and said, yeah, I believe in you, I'll do it, but then just stood there and didn't go with Isaac, did he actually believe it? No, he, he walked by faith. He endured the test, trusting that God could and would provide in the midst of it when things were still unknown to him because we have to recognize that we're told that this is a test. Abraham isn't told that this is a test. This wouldn't be a hard test if he was told that it was a test. We think about if God came to him and was like, Abraham, just want you to know, man, I'm about to test you. It's gonna be really hard. But don't worry, you won't actually have to do it. Right, what? okay, I'll do whatever you say. I'll go to the mountain, bind up my son, right? God doesn't tell him it's a test. And we often don't know when God is testing us. I would say it's more common than not that we don't know when God is testing us. But he calls us in the midst of those tests to walk by faith with the confidence that he can and will provide for his people. Just maybe not in the ways that we expect him to or want him to. This is why in the New Testament, James looks to Abraham to teach Christians about the nature of saving faith. Saving faith isn't just believing the right things. It's belief turned into action, right? This is why James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Why would the phrase Abraham, be, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness be fulfilled when he sacrificed his son? Because it showed that he actually had the faith that counts it as righteousness through believing in God's promises that God can and will provide. The testimony or the declaration that we believe will be proved out in our walking in obedience to God's commands. James isn't teaching a works-based salvation as though we're saved by obedience. He's simply saying that if we believe in God, it will be evident in our actions. Abraham's faith 
was proved by his obedience. His belief was proved by his action. Just want to take a brief moment to speak to the kids here. This is really helpful and I think important for you to know, especially if you're being raised in a Christian household. Your parents are going to teach you the gospel. They're going to teach you a lot about God. And you have the capacity to learn things about God and to know things about God. And as you grow older, that's good. That knowledge, I pray and we pray, would transform your heart and your mind and that you'd be renewed in the knowledge of Christ. But knowing things about God is not the same as knowing God. Knowing God appears in our actions, in our, in our life of loving God and loving neighbor. And you can ask your, your parents later, hey, unpack for me what it looks like to, to actually live out my faith. Help me understand that. Because at this age, probably not surprising if you're struggling to kind of re, to, to understand what it means. But I wanna encourage you to think about this. It's not just knowing things about God, it's knowing God and living in relationship with him. Abraham responds to God's test with faith-filled obedience. Abraham's faith was proved by his obedience. His belief was proved by his action. So I wonder how many of you kids love going to the pool, right? Imagine, you can raise your hand if you like going to the pool. I'm gonna raise your hand with you. I go off the high dive. Whenever I get a chance to go to the Chevrolet pool, I'm off the high dive with y'all, right, doing cannonballs. They're not that great, though. Imagine with me that you're at the pool, and you see a father with two young children, and it's clear that those young children haven't been in the pool before. The dad gets in the water, and he calls for them to jump into his arms, and he assures them, I'm going to catch you. Maybe your dad did this with you. And the, both of the kids, they're timid, right? They walk up to the edge, then they retreat, they lean out, and then they walk back, they pace around, and the dad continues assuring them, I'll catch you, I'll catch you. And then finally, one of them jumps, and the dad catches him, while the other continues pacing around, considering jumping, but never actually jumping into his father's arm. Afterwards, both boys are adamant. I believe that you would catch me. Which one of them actually believed? Bridget. The one who jumped in the water. In the same way, if we say that we believe that God can be trusted to provide, but we're not actually willing to walk in faith-filled obedience when things get, seem difficult, do we actually believe? Right, now listen, I, I, I am not intending in any way to say that if we have failed to obey God perfectly at all times, then our faith isn't genuine. Abraham failed to obey God repeatedly, and genuine believers will as well. It's not as though there aren't failures along the way. It's that those failures are repented of. And as we walk that road of experiencing testing, failing at times, repenting and receiving grace from God, we should see a growth in our willingness to walk in faith-filled obedience to God's commands. And we learn that he is able to provide for us as we walk in obedience to him, even at great cost. So friends, I don't know what circumstances you're facing right now. I don't know what the pressures you're facing are. I don't know all the consequences that might come your way if you choose to obey God in the particular circumstances you're facing, but I do know this. God is able to provide. If obedience costs you a job, can God not provide you with another job? If obedience costs you friendships and popularity, can God not provide you with new friends? 
If obedience costs you a relationship that was near and dear to you, can God not provide a new relationship? I think about what Jesus promised to those who were envisioning having to give up their houses and homes and families in order to follow him because those houses and homes and families wouldn't have anything to do with those people any longer because they followed Jesus. He said, now in this life, you will receive a hundredfold houses and homes and families and in the life to come, eternal life. God provides now for his people and abundantly in the life to come. If God is able to give life from the dead, then he is able to provide for you and me as we walk in faith-filled obedience to his commands. But not only does he provide for those who respond to testing with faith-filled obedience, he also blesses those who do. And that brings us to our third and final point, blessing. We should respond to testing with faith-filled obedience because God abundantly blesses those who do. And we see that clearly in the passage. God responds to Abraham's obedience with promises of abundant blessing. Look at verses 16 and following. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham has passed the test and as a result receives blessing from God. God powerfully reasserts that all of the promises that he has made to Abraham from Genesis 12 onward will absolutely be his. God tested, Abraham obeyed, God blesses. And you can't help but see how this passage contained a powerful lesson for the people of Israel to whom this letter was originally written. Time and time again, throughout their history as a people, God would test them. He would ordain circumstances in which they would have to choose between obeying God or taking matters into their own hands. And what God is teaching them in Genesis 22 is that if they would walk by faith, even when the circumstances seemed utterly stacked against them, God would provide for them and God would bless them. But they didn't learn that lesson. They didn't walk in Abraham's footsteps. In the wilderness, they failed the test. They stored up more manna than they should have. They grumbled and complained. They committed idolatry and engaged in sexual immorality. They didn't believe that God could be trusted. And then when God brought them into the promised land and left some of the nations around them to test them to see whether they would be faithful to him, they failed the test. They followed after the nations, worshiped false gods, trusted in their power, riches, and wealth, rather than in the God who redeemed them from the pit and who had the power to provide all that they needed. And they continued failing tests until they were exiled from God's presence. But God wasn't done with them yet. God would provide for them again. He showed once again that he could be trusted to provide for and bless his people 
And he did this by sending his son Jesus into the world to save sinners. And Jesus would save sinners by passing all of God's tests in our place. Abraham's obedience in the face of great testing in Genesis 22 foreshadows for us the greater obedience of Jesus in the face of greater testing. Unlike Abraham, who failed to obey God at times, Jesus never failed. Though Abraham obeyed God for three tortuous days, Jesus obeyed God for 30 years, never once failing, never once turning away from God. Even when he was tested by Satan in the wilderness, he passes with flying colors and he remained unflinchingly committed to obeying the mission God had given them to the, to the very end. Not the mission of sacrificing someone else, but the mission of laying down his own life on the cross. What does Paul say about Jesus in Philippians 2 verse 8? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus obeyed to the point of death, God has guaranteed that all who trust in him will receive all of the promised blessings of the new covenant. Because my son has passed every test all of my promises to you in the gospel are yes and amen. And because God has lavished his grace on us, bringing us from death to life, redeeming us from the pit. Think of Jonah in the belly of the great fish, wrapped in the cords of death. God heard his plea, answered his cry, lifted him from the pit, and gave him life. That beautiful picture of what God has done in your life and mine by his grace. He has lavished it upon us. We weren't asking for it. We weren't pursuing it. We weren't searching out God for it. And yet he said, I'm gonna provide what you don't even realize you need. Come to life. And we came to life. God has abundantly lavished his grace on us. And because he has so abundantly provided for us and blessed us in Christ, we have every reason now to respond to testing and trials with faith-filled obedience. Not only because of how God has provided for and blessed us in Christ, but because of how he continues blessing his people as they walk in obedience to his commands. In what ways does he do this? I, I think we rightly get uncomfortable when we talk about the fact that God blesses his people because so many people, uh, preachers in this world, have perverted that message and said that God intends to bless you with health and wealth and prosperity. You should never be sick. You should be rich. You just need to pray harder. If you had greater faith, you would get all these things. That is a false gospel. That is a lie. But we should also not turn away from the fact that the New Testament is crystal clear that God blesses his people when they walk in his ways. How does God bless them? In what ways does he bless us as, he wa as we walk in obedience? He blesses us with the gracious experience of living with the grain of creation. Right? God created us to live in obedience to him. And so when we walk in faith-filled obedience to his commands, we experience the blessing of our lives functioning as they were designed to. A couple of years ago, I tried my hand at woodworking. I haven't tried it again, just to let y'all know how that went. 
I built some bookshelves from reclaimed wood, and I spent hours sanding these things, hours sanding them. I always enjoyed, my first time doing it was something that I had worked on, I always enjoyed running my hand down the board with the grain of the wood. It was so smooth. Wow. Because I was a noob, I didn't realize what would happen when I ran my hand against the grain. I got splinters in my hand. I thought because it ran smoothly one direction, it would run smoothly the other direction, but it didn't, and I paid for it in splinters. In the same way, when we live in obedience to God's commands, we experience the blessing of running our hand with the grain of creation. But when we go the other direction, we get splinters. Right, kids, I'm sure you've experienced this, right? When you get angry with your siblings, does your relationship with them get weaker or stronger? Weaker, that's exactly right. Or the adults, when you go against the grain and indulge in sin, do you experience joy, peace, contentment, or guilt, shame, and sorrow, right? But it's not just the blessings of going with the grain. When we respond to tests by walking in faith, we also experience the blessing of our faith being strengthened. Paul says in Romans 5 that as Abraham experienced testing over the 25 years that he followed the Lord, sometimes failing, sometimes passing, Paul says he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As we walk by faith in, res in response to the various tests and trials we experience in life, we grow in spiritual endurance. And endurance produces the blessing of character. And character produces the blessing of hope. That's why we wanna think of God testing us not as some mean teacher looking for an opportunity to show us we failed, but as like a physical trainer looking to strengthen our faith, right? Good trainers are not just gonna let you train your strengths, they're gonna force you to address your weaknesses, right? They won't let you skip leg day. If those legs are gonna get stronger, you're gonna need to test them. In the same way, God the good trainer tests our weaknesses, not so that we would fail the test, but so that we would experience the blessing of being strengthened in our faith. As we're tested and at times fail, and yet see that even when we fail, God provides, we grow in our belief that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, can also and will also graciously with him give us all things. And ultimately, when we walk in faithful obedience to God's commands, we experience the blessing of more of God himself. Now, God gives us himself completely in saving us, completely. Yet on this side of heaven, we experience the blessing of greater communion with him as we walk by faith. I'm sure you recognize this in your own relationships. When you're in conflict with another person, there is a barrier between you. You don't feel close to them. You don't feel at peace with them. In the same way, when we don't walk by faith, we experience distance from God or displeasure from God or discipline from God. But it's at this point we need to remember that God disciplines, he tests those he loves. I'll always remember in middle school and high school, the anxiety of waiting for coaches to put out the cut list for the teams that I was trying out for. I don't even know if they still do this. It was a brutal experience. You would go through the tryouts, 
There'd be like 50 kids trying out for the baseball team. There's only like 20 spots on the team. And after the first tryout, everyone's waiting around and the coach opens the door, doesn't even like show his face and just slams his list up on the wall and then shuts the door and you gotta run up and see, am I still on it? Can I still come? Have I failed the test? Right? That's not what God's tests are like. You are not gonna be cut from the team because you fail one of his tests. God loves you He is for you, and his discipline and testing of you is because he loves you. If you've repented and trusted in Jesus, nothing can separate you from God's love for you in Christ, not even failing the tests that God gives you in this life. On this side of heaven, we will continue to struggle with sin, but we can also walk by faith in response to testing, not only because of the blessings God pours out on us in this life, but because of the blessing of eternal life to come. Think about how James encourages his audience. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, that crown of life awaits all of us who've trusted in Christ. That that crown of life can be yours if you would turn and put your trust in Christ today. We should respond to testing with faith-filled obedience because God abundantly blesses those who do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We fail daily, but we rejoice that even though we fail daily, your mercy to us in Christ is more. Cause the mercy that you show us each and every day to grow us in our love for you, strengthen our faith, that we would walk in obedience to you in even the most difficult of circumstances, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.